bat. Good morning, Al. Hey, good morning. Good morning, everyone. Hope uh, everybody is having their very best day ever. It's uh, it's another lovely day out there. I went for a walk early this morning, and it was uh, it was pretty quiet for a while. But it was it was just really nice walking. The grass was pretty wet, but uh, as long as I didn't get into too deep a grass, it was it was just the most pleasant of walks. So I. Uh, I appreciate good weather, as as every Minnesotan should, I guess, because uh, I don't know what percent of good weather. I guess it's all good weather, depending on your uh, your viewpoint. But I I wonder what percent of what we could call beautiful, nice days we get during a year. Um, well, so if you are, are too a, hot. I was going to say, if you're a guy who makes ice, this would be horrible letter, weather and sells ice. So. It's like you said, all perspective, isn't it? Yeah, and I um, have a friend, uh, um, Dick Swanson from uh, Mankato, a retired professor, and his family ran, uh, oh, I'm going to get the wrong name on this stuff, uh, the the chipped ice things at uh, the fairs. Mm-hmm. It, and his whole family worked in there. That was their college money. So during the summer, they worked in there. And you'd go over, and I'd, I'd stop and see them at the Steele County Fair, I recall, one year. And it was just hotter than blue blazes, as my Uncle Bill would say. And here was uh, Dick's family. All They had mittens on, <laughs> and they had uh, big boots and parkas, because they were working back there chipping ice all the time so where they are it was freezing and for the rest of us out there it was just uh, suffocatingly hot which was a good a good day to be selling those ice chips and uh, those flavored ice things that got a little bit of cherry or something on them they're very good i do want to thank everybody who uh, was on the pelican breeze with me on sunday and i know we had a lot of listeners we had to turn back uh, uh, a whole lot of people. It's just one of those days that a lot of people had the same idea, and I, I feel bad about that. And I know uh, the lady who's uh, one of the ladies who's in charge of it is calling a lot of those folks to see if we can uh, line up another date when they can make it. You just feel terrible, and mm-hmm. you have to. A lot of them drove quite a ways, and but uh, it was it was a lot of fun. We had a beautiful day out there. It was uh, a little breezy, so we didn't go quite as far as we typically do because. We didn't want to become the minnow and uh, have to be on an <laughs> island with Gilligan for many, many years. And also today, uh, I want to thank folks. I, I, wrote, I wrote an article for the Township News, and I know a lot of you just had a shiver go up and down your spine just thinking <laughs> a magazine, a publication called the Township News. <laughs> that must be pretty exciting. And uh, I wrote about... Uh, my township, where I live, the history here, and some of the, there were some shenanigans went on, I think, back in the day, back in like the 1858 or so when I got going here, and there was just some, oh, there was some political intrigue and some espionage and thing, and I wrote about it, but for some reason I heard from a number of people here in the last day or so, so I just, uh, and uh, one or two mentioned they listened to KMSU, so I just want to say um, thanks, it was nice hearing from you. The the other day, uh, I saw a man standing in a big parking lot, right in the middle of it. And that's no big deal. You see that a lot. But he was holding a watermelon, 
a big watermelon. He was just standing there holding a watermelon. And you, I figured he was waiting for his wife to drive the car closer to the melon, but there might have been more to the story. I, I had two desires. I wanted to just walk over and say, what are you doing? And I wanted to walk over and thump the watermelon. And I've perused the watermelon sections of some of the finest grocery stores while looking for a melon heavy for its size. That's what I look for, heavy for its size. I figure that's good. And then I always have strangers. Nobody's a stranger in the watermelon section, I guess. So strangers walk up and they tell me how they decide whether a watermelon is ripe or not. And most of them is by, they they do it by rapping with a favorite knuckle. Then they listen for a deep, hollow sound that tells them the melon is ripe. One guy said it should sound like a drum, but I, I don't know what kind of drum. <laughs> One wise fellow told me if the melon sounds like I'm thumping my head, it's not ripe. <laughs> and if it sounds like I'm thumping my stomach, then it's overripe. And if it sounds like I'm thumping my chest, that's a good one right there. That's the one to grab. Well, doesn't it depend on how much you had to eat? I was going to say, doesn't it depend on how much you had to eat that day? Your your thumping uh, sounds could be different, I would think. So I think it all depends. I'm going to go with the one I'm going to thump my head and then thump the uh, watermelon. (laughs) And if that sounds the same, then I know it's it's not ripe yet. So... Uh, Mark Twain said when one has tasted a watermelon, he knows what the angels eat. And the problem with watermelon is once it's detached from the vine, a watermelon won't continue to ripen. So if you get a watermelon that's not ripe, that's what you're going to be stuck with is an unripe melon. So, um, you know, thump away in there. I think, don't you think that, like, the store manager expects people to come in and thump watermelons? I mean, if you're going to have watermelons, (laughs) they are going to be thumped because that's what we do. Well, I always sniff. I, I was gonna say, the, I always sniff the cantaloupe. I always thought you that sniff they them? sniff, yeah, and the peaches and the cantaloupe because I always thought that if it smells a little like the the fruit, then it it should be ripe. Otherwise, it's you know not ripe yet. So that's what I think, but I could be wrong. But that's what I do. Sniff them. And on on cantaloupe or muskmelon, if the the stem is shriveled up, my mom always told me that was the way you look. And, of course, watermelon, uh, I know a lot of people do this. My mom did. She looked for the color on the bottom of wow. the watermelon where it had been sitting on the ground. And every and that's what makes watermelon so good. I guess there's always a little bit of a risk when you buy a watermelon. Will it be good? Will it be bad? Will it be that kind that you just pass around to everybody in the family and they just say, oh, this ambrosia, this is the best thing ever? Or will they um, kind of pick on you and say, what were you thinking? getting this watermelon. We're going to have to send somebody else with you just to make sure you get good watermelon. But, oh, I love watermelon. And, uh, yeah, I get some sweet corn and watermelon, and it's just uh, it's nirvana. I sat on the deck of the house here, and it was uh, it's late August, you know. I sat out there in the evening. No mosquitoes or anything. It was just lovely. And Psalms reminds me to be still and know. And that's what I'm trying to do. A field cricket, nearly as black as a crow, moved past me. Just walked past me. He had a place where he had to be and wasn't paying any attention to me. But the sky over the yard was filled with hunters. Dragonflies flew the lowest. 
uh, swallows took up the middle lane, and then common nighthawks took the highest sky road. And what brought these mighty nimrods to my neck of the woods? Yeah, well, nimrods, you know, we call somebody like a, your brother, oh, a nimrod. But in the Bible, nimrod was a mighty hunter. Oh. These hunters were feasting upon swarms of what I've heard referred to as flying plankton and their ant swarms. And around this time of year, the male and queen ants, they're winged, go off on these nuptial flights, and everything shows up to eat them. So it's a, I look forward to it every year, and I'm always, you know, the ants wouldn't mind if I missed it, I guess, but I sure would feel bad if I missed this. It was just an amazing thing to see, as it is every year. And a vulture performed a feeding frenzy of his own, uh, or its own, I don't know if it was a he or a she, on a raccoon carcass on the road. And in my boyhood, my family had a five-second rule. If we dropped something on the floor, <laughs> we could still eat it. If we picked it up within five seconds, unless it was a sugar cookie, then it was a five-minute rule. <laughs> Turkey vultures adhere to a five-day rule, so they will oh. let stuff be there a long time. I watched a hummingbird, my wife and I, uh, visit multiple flowers of jewelweed, and he visited at a hectic pace, just whoom, 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 lapping up all the calories it could. And I read somewhere that when scaled to the size of a human, so all of a sudden this little hummingbird becomes my size, that this little hummingbird would need to take in 155,000 calories Ooh. daily just to get by, which just sounds uh, astounding to me. And uh, I I know I've read it in a lot of places, and I know the last place I read it was in Audubon. So, uh, Jewelweed or touch-me-not has those juicy stems that, when crushed, may serve to relieve the itch of poison ivy and oh. stinging nettle for some. And it's called uh, Spotted Touch-Me-Not because the fruits explode. If you touch them, boom, and they eject the seeds in a distribution mode called ballistic dispersal, which is just the coolest. I'm going to try to use that uh, like four or five times today. It's hard to get that in a conversation. You just don't blurt out uh, ballistic dispersal (laughs) when you're sitting around the cafe table. But I think I'm going to give it a shot today and just see what happens there. Say before you go uh, on, Mike Al. Peters I wanted to heart. talk, Al. Yeah. Before you go on, you were talking about hummingbirds. I wanted to chat a little bit about them because I've I've started seeing them again uh, coming around, and I put out some fresh uh, nectar for them that I made. And I'm wondering now, are they on the move back to go south yet, or and should we change the ratio of sugar to water because sometimes they need more energy, or is that a myth, or what? What do you suggest? Yeah, and uh, I guess it doesn't hurt to to change it a little bit uh, but you know as a general rule four parts water one part sugar mm-hmm. works very very well and yeah they are on their way out but it's usually the I see them the last week of September oh. pretty regularly and and there's still a chance you'll see them after that yeah I almost guarantee it if you're out there looking hard enough but it's usually next month we can still have them around, and then they, they're they gone. So it, uh, And we miss them. They're just, oh, man. I saw so many at the uh, Henderson Hummingbird Hurrah, which is just the, the coolest gathering of hummingbirds and people 
that you could find anywhere in the world, I think. So they are just uh, such nifty little guys, and it's so fun to watch them. Uh, good eaters. And if you put out four to one, do you need to boil the water and everything? You really don't, unless you're going to store it. You can just use regular water. You can you know, heat it up a little bit if you want, but shake it up good. Make sure the sugar's in there and put it out. And if you have a bird feeder that uh, some of the old ones had, little or no red, and sometimes the red wears away or breaks off, just tie a ribbon around it. Or if you have maybe some potted red geraniums, put them right under it or near it. So they will come to that, and then they'll see this feeder and and uh, feed. So it, it's it's fun having them in the yard. I well, there I saw one just go by my window and is on the feeder right now here. So um, Mike Peters of Harmony, um, nice guy, sent me a bunch of photos of peacocks. I used to raise peafowl, and they are they're just really lovely, lovely birds, and they flew up high. One of them would fly up under a windmill, uh, not all the way up, but partially up, and then it would holler, help. That's kind of the call (laughs) they make, and disturbed a lot of visitors and things because they'd hear somebody hollering, help. And back in those days, you know, we always had visitors. There was always the Watkins guy or the Raleigh guy, the Fuller Brush guy. Somebody was lost. There was just always somebody there. And they, a um, lot of them, I think, were anxious to leave after they heard somebody hollering help from uh, up high. I want to wish again to Carol and Merrill Frydendahl on their 60th anniversary. And uh, I, uh, Gail and I visited the Methodist Church there. Uh, we hadn't been there since their 50th anniversary, so it was uh, two better people you will not find. Uh, Doug Keezer said there are two immature red crossbills in the Winthrop Cemetery feeding in the ash trees. Uh, cemetery is on the west edge of town. Jeannie Mortensen of Faribault said, I have a couple questions. Al, Sunday we went, uh, uh, came, went to, I'm not sure what W's are, maybe Wisconsin, and back through Red Wing and stopped at Sargent's Greenhouse, uh, really nice and full of the neatest plants. Well, I was going to either buy a hosta or something else, but then I saw these swamp milkweeds. They had them on a circular display. I walked around and kept looking at them. I spied a caterpillar and stood looking at it for quite a while. He was really eating those leaves. I decided to buy the plant. My husband said I paid twelve ninety five for a caterpillar. We put it in the car very carefully, got home, and he was really eating I put it in the garage so I could watch him. I've never seen so much poop come out of a little animal like that. But now we have a beautiful chrysalis. Yeah, the chrysalis is on the leaf of the swamp milkweed. I don't get that very often, but it does happen. Uh, back to Jeannie, said the light green and gold dots. God does a very good job of making things look beautiful. I will plant the milkweed now, or should I wait and keep it on the deck until it emerges? I've checked it so much that our lab is also doing that. I watched her go over every time I put her out. Um, you know, I, I'd put it out, I guess, but that's just me, Jeannie. A lot of people like to keep them somewhere where they'd be safer, and uh, so I'd be all right with either way, um, like I have a final say in it anyway. So, But thanks for writing, Jeannie. Uh, John Nelson of Buford. Not a lot of people can claim they're from Buford. 
said at the Maple River WMA saw 10 eastern kingbirds on one span of power line. Down the road, four American kestrels. The flooded field on County 16 west of Perch Lake has 14 great egrets. The flooded field uh, east of Perch has a couple of dowagers and assorted other shorebirds. Would require a scope for me to identify, notable by absence, any turkey vultures. A woman in Henderson, um, I talked to so many nice people there, told me that if the first week in August is unusually warm, the coming winter will be snowy and long. Her grandfather had taught her that, and I think we were uh, pretty warm. I don't know if it's unusually, but we were warm that time. So I, I looked at the the almanacs. The farmer's almanac is predicting a frigid and snowy winter with above-normal snow. The coldest period will be the last week of January through the beginning of February. That's the farmer's almanac. The old farmer's almanac <laughs> forecasts temperatures above normal hmm. with near-to-normal snowfall. So they differ quite a bit. And it says the coldest period will be uh, early to late January, so the month of January, uh, in late February, and then early and mid, early to actually late March. The snowiest periods will be in early and mid January, early February, and then early to mid March. Who so do you believe, they, Al, they, or who I, should we believe? Who's been more accurate? Is do you have I any predictions? I think the woman in Henderson. I'm going to believe her. <laughs> I think we're going to have a, a snowy and long winter because, you know what, we pretty much always have snowy and long winters, so I, I think I'm going to go with her. And the other two are they are just wonderful publications. I really enjoy reading them and all the uh, folklore and things. And they both, uh, I think they both declare an accuracy rate about the same. So uh, it'll be interesting this year because they they differ greatly. Again, the Farmer's Almanac is saying uh, frigid and snowy, above normal snow. And the old Farmer's Almanac is saying temperatures above normal with near to above normal snowfall. So it'll be interesting. Uh, Brenda Katasek of Lesseur asked if Baltimore Orioles have more than one brood per year. Uh, if if they're nesting and it results in fledged young, they will not attempt a second brood. They say, boy, that's it. We got them out of the nest. But if that first nest fails, particularly if it fails early, then they may try again. So they only have one brood per year, but it might be two nestings to get that done. Uh, Jamie Tennyson of Clarks Grove reported that her six-year-old son found a cedar waxwing nest in a pine tree on the family's Christmas tree farm on August 21st, and she asked if that was a late date for nesting. What Boy, it sure sounds like it would be, uh, Jamie, but sometimes cedar waxwings will have two broods. Uh, Tom Belshin of Glenville said, why aren't big birds like hawks electrocuted when they perch on electric wires? Uh, boy, they are sometimes, Tom. Really? Uh, if, you know, oh. the birds can sit safely on the wires because they aren't grounded. But if they touch another wire, they oh. complete the circuit and then they get zapped. So it does happen on occasion. I grew up uh, where we had a barbed wire fence around the farm, and then we'd... Uh, 
oh, we'd get more livestock or something, so we'd put electric fence around the barbed wire fence. And sometimes if we got the electric fence too close, small birds would reach across from one fence to the other, I'm guessing trying to pick an insect, and they would zap themselves. And it would shut, uh, it would ground our electric wire. And um, a weed could do that, and they had weed burners, they called them, electric fences that were supposed to be so strong they could overcome that. But it was always a terrible, terrible job for me as a bird lover to go out and walk that and find a bird electrocuted. So I would move the electric fence uh, whatever way possible so that wouldn't happen again. Do you know, Al, with uh, talking, ab- talking yeah. about electric fences, I remember, you know, we had a big pasture because we had a lot, of, a lot of cows, but I remember having to go around and taking like a machete knife and, and chopping the weeds because they grow up closer to, to the wire. But I don't ever recall seeing birds, and maybe it's because I wasn't looking for them, but you'd get so the, the weeds would hit and then it would um, you know stop the fence so you we that that was a regular chores to go with the machete and just chop them down and I just remember that not being fun because there was a lot of mosquitoes <laughs> there was and yeah I used an old corn knife we called oh, it okay and cows they could tell when that I don't know if they had like uh, Margie the cow and they would send her over every day saying Margie go over and check that electric fence and then let us know and if Margie's tail didn't just uh, puff up and sparks fly from it, <laughs> then they knew that that electric fence wasn't working, and then they'd be up to mischief. I don't know if they could hear if the electric fence made a sound, because it sure did in the barn, but if that's how they knew, because sh- it just seemed like that fence would go out, and about five minutes later they'd some cow out. was trying to walk through mm-hmm. it or reach under it or... They were just really good at that, and I don't know how they did it. I asked them on numerous occasions, and, well, they were sworn to secrecy, I'm afraid. <clears throat> Kevin Lynn, uh, Kevin lives in Belle Plaine. He asked where hummingbirds nest. Hmm. The females build a nest on, they like slender, often descending branches, usually on deciduous trees. Uh, and I want to underline and circle usually because I've seen them in pine trees and I've seen them in coiled electric cords and uh, ornamental uh, fence or garden gate things, but primarily on deciduous trees. And they're typically, oh, I'm trying to picture it in my mind, maybe 10 to 40 feet above the ground. A Harmony listener mentioned my reference to the American kestrel being a secondary cavity nester and wondered what that meant. Well, kestrel is one of the species that takes advantage of natural or abandoned cavities, or they obtain them by aggressive intrusion, and they may make no substantial modifications to the cavities, but they will take over a woodpecker uh, nest. Uh, Larry Iverson, who's a pastor, uh, Larry and I went to Costa Rica together, and Larry lives in Rochester. He said he went for a walk in a cemetery and saw all kinds of painted ladies, and he was wondering if they are migrating now. Um, there was a plethora of painted ladies again this year. Uh, they are um, grown-up thistle caterpillars. And the second brood of these butterflies migrate south beginning in August and continuing sometimes through November. 
and they overwinter in the southwestern U.S. and northern Mexico, and they migrate north in the spring and most years temporarily repopulating the U.S. and Canada. Some years they don't migrate at all, and in rainy years on their wintering ground, the northward migrations can be enormous. And you have a couple of texts. I do. I've got a few texts, actually. I'll start at the the beginning, which is the first one I received from John in New Ulm. He says, where did the crayon go on vacation? (laughs) Where did the crayon go on vacation? Oh, colors, box. I don't know. Where did he go? Colorado. Colorado. Get it? Uh, And then John says he had a group of geese fly by in a V-shape a few days ago, and he took a lightning bug outside that was in his house. So uh, thanks, John, for saving that little lightning bug. Yeah. And then another one says, Mr. Bat, I heard the best way to catch a woodpecker is to sprinkle salt on its tail. Is this true? Yeah, you know, and boy, I heard that growing up all the time, too. And I always, I'd ask my dad, and I'd say, well, if I can um, put salt on its tail, couldn't I just reach out and catch it? Yeah. I'd, I'd be close <laughs> enough then. And But it's been around, and I remember looking it up once, and I went way back to like the 16th century or something like that. And uh, I remember one suggests that maybe salting a bird's tail startles it just enough hmm. for you to catch it before it flies away. And some said that salt had magical properties that cast a spell over the bird. And others uh, said, uh, oh, it, what, it would interfere with their ability to take flight. And I, I don't know. I guess, again, if you're close enough to get salt on a bird's tail you're close enough to catch it but it's great hearing that and uh, boy like I said I heard that all the time growing up and that said that he says keep up the good work that's from Carl in Morristown and then a more recent one he says $12.95 for a caterpillar that's not bad she'd have paid more for a John Deere a deer (laughs) haha good one (laughs) that's right you are correct quite a bit more I think (laughs) <laughs> so thanks, listeners, for weighing well, in. We always appreciate it. Yeah, and John and Carl, yeah. and then the other one, I don't know who it is, but uh, good one. Yeah, twelve ninety five, a deal for a Caterpillar. I'd love get, get one. Yeah, yeah it's, a, um, it's a lot of fun uh, hearing from everybody. There's great people out there, and uh, I'm just so happy to, to know some of them. So uh, See, Al- I appreciate all your tech. Yeah. Are you going to be heading up to the state fair? I'm just wondering, because, uh, you know, a lot of times you make fair visits, and I was curious if that's uh, one of your visits this year. It sounds to me, uh, Karen, as if there's way too many people there this year. <laughs> uh, my goodness, that first day, I couldn't imagine being there. I was there one year, years ago, where it set an all-time record, which has been demolished probably oh, yeah. 20 times since then. But, oh, it just... I don't know. It was just, you couldn't walk anywhere, and, uh, you know, I like walking and hiking, and I waited in line. The Scouts Honor, I got in a line because it was, uh, 
it was one of those lines snaking out of a building, and I was just going for a long... And I'd just come from being in a line buying chocolate-covered potato <laughs> chips from my, my mother-in-law, which I was the only male in that line, so I was very... I told all the ladies, because they all asked, and I said, I'm getting it for my mother-in-law, and they just thought I was wonderful. So I was feeling pretty good about being in lines, and I come out, and here's this long, long line. And I, so I get in it, and the guy ahead of me, I say, well, what are we in line for? And he said, I don't know, but it's got to be something really good. <laughs> so then after a while, you're there, and there's these all these people behind you. So you think, well, I better just, I'm going to stay in this line now. And it ended up being a, a orange bag from, oh, oh I'm going to get to college. I'm Augsburg, perhaps. It was oh, from a college. Funny. And uh, so I waited all that time, but then I had a bigger bag to put the chocolate-covered potato chips for my mother-in-law in, so it was pretty good. And when are you going to be up there? Well, we've got a couple times. Blake is in the talent show. He won the local talent show at the county, and he will be there on Thursday evening. We're, he's going to be doing his emu puppet comedy routine, and then the 4-H, judging for... Both of my boys, Blake and Grant, is going to be on Saturday. So we'll be there again on Saturday. And Grant is bringing his geology. He's got a mineral collection. And Blake is going to do his comedy routine for the 4-H program as well. So, uh, yeah, so we'll be up there. And oh. and if he wins the talent competition on, uh, let's see, Thursday, we got to be up there again. So we'll we'll see, well, you know, one step at a time. Oh, well, I wish you good luck there. So it's uh, it's fun being up there, and I, I worked uh, by where the uh, most years I either worked in the Audubon booth or the DNR mm-hmm. thing by, the, by all the fish, and then for the Minnesota MOU, Minnesota Ornithologist Union. And it was, it was fun because I'd see people who would stop, uh, people I've known forever, that I'd see once a year. And that was at the fair, sure. the Minnesota State Fair. Before, and it was, that was the coolest part. Before you go on, I have another, another person has another text for you. Hummingbirds at my feeder seem to be territorial. Is that true? Oh, boy, are they ever. They just, you know, you say, why are they doing that now? They don't, they're not nesting or anything. But the thing is, the one comes in there and says, boy, this is some really good nectar. This is the best nectar ever. I need to have all this nectar. So if another bird comes near, they chase it away. And if you watch them sometimes, they'll fly off the feeder, and they'll get in a bush or a shrub, and they kind of hide in the shadows and just wait for another bird to come so they can chase it away. So they are just, I guess if you're that little, it helps to have a bit of a cantankerous personality that helps you survive. Because if you were just a, a too easy going, maybe you couldn't make it when you're that small. But um, great to hear from you. I hope everybody will come to the cafe today where the food chain is missing a few links. A special is always a Heimlich maneuver and gravy is considered a beverage. And now featuring authentic leftovers with less hair in the food and real cup holders where grease is good and none of the food smells like feet. Well, hardly any. I worked at the Steele County Free Fair, as I do each year. The fair had an attendance of 300 
22,347 this year, up from 313,347 in 2018. There were over 100 food vendors. I was pleased to walk the fairgrounds without incurring injury because I'd recently lost a bit of flesh on my shin. It was due to a minor accident while cutting down a tree at home. The, the tree bit me. It wasn't a frameable moment. And the injury was slow and mending because I kept bumping it whenever it said, oh, I'm just about healed, and I bump it because time wounds all heals. <laughs> it was a trauma tattoo. Scars and stories begin with bad ideas, and I'm a man. We have many bad ideas. We have fewer good ideas, but we do have them. My best idea ever was marrying Gail. Uh, happy anniversary to the best part of me coming up on September 6th. It's been a wonderful 50-year conversation wow. seasoned with magic. And the only secret I can share with others is boast about your spouse. And I will say my wife is awesome. So uh, remember, folks, Heartland is while we're driving past. Uh, thanks for listening, and thank you, uh, as always. And, Karen, I, I wish you and your family just the best of luck at the state fair. So we'll be reading about you and hearing about you somewhere. All right. Thanks, Al. It's always great to talk to you, and happy anniversary to you and Gail coming up on September 6th. I hope you're uh, celebrating in style. We will do that. Okay, bye-bye, Al.